Chapter 7, Part 1 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 7 the homecoming. A great and exultant cheer went up from the massed thousands in Charleston. A smile passed over Beauregard's swarthy face as he showed his white teeth. Colonel Leonidas Talbot regarded the white flag with feelings in which triumph and sadness were mingled strangely. But the emotions of Harry and his comrades were, for the moment, those of victory only. Boats put out both from the fort and the shore. Discipline was relaxed now. Harry, St. Clair, and Langdon went outside the battery. A light breeze had sprung up, and it was very grateful to Harry, who for hours had breathed the heavy odors of smoke and burned gunpowder. The smoke itself, which had formed a vast cloud over the harbor, forts, and city, was now drifting out to sea, leaving all things etched sharply in the dazzling sunlight of a southern spring day. Well... Old wait and see, you have watched and you have seen, said Langdon to Harry. That white flag and those boats going out mean that Sumter is ours. Everything is for the best and we win everywhere and all the time. Harry was silent. He was watching the boats. But the negotiations were soon completed. Sumter, a mass of ruins, was given up, and the stars and bars, taking the place of the stars and stripes, gaily snapped defiance to the whole north. It begins to look well here, said Beauregard, gazing proudly at the new flag. All the amenities were preserved between the captured garrison and their captors. Anderson was sent to the Baltic, which still hovered outside, and the Union vessels disappeared on their way back to the north. Peace, but now the peace of triumph settled over Charleston, and throughout the south went the joyous tidings that Sumter had been taken. The great state of Virginia mother of presidents went out of the union at last and north carolina tennessee and arkansas followed her but maryland kentucky and missouri still hung in the balance lincoln had called for volunteers to put down a rebellion but harry heard everywhere in charleston that the confederacy was now secure the southerners were rising by the thousands to defend it the women too were full of zeal and enthusiasm and they urged the men to go to the front with the full consent of the lower south the capital was to be moved from montgomery to richmond the capital of virginia on the very border of the confederacy to look defiantly as it were across at washington over a state which was to become the vast battlefield of america although few then dreamed it the progress of president davis to the new capital set in the very face of the foe was to be one huge triumph of faith and loyalty Harry heard nothing in Charleston but joyful news. There was not a single note of gloom. Europe, which must have its cotton, would favor the success of the South. Women who had never worked before sewed day and night on clothing for the soldiers. Men gave freely and without asking to the new government. An extraordinary wave of emotion swept over the South, carrying everybody with it. Charleston shouted anew as the newspapers announced the news of the distinguished officers who had gone out with the southern states. There were the two Johnstons, 
the one of Virginia and the other of Kentucky, Lee, Bragg of Buena Vista fame, Longstreet and many others, some already celebrated in the Mexican War, and others with a greater fame yet to make. Harry heard it all, and it was transfused into his own blood. Now a letter came from his father, that obstinate faction in Kentucky still held the state to the Union. Since Sumter had fallen and Charleston was safe, he wished his son to rejoin him in Pendleton, whence they would proceed together to Frankfurt to help the Southern party. His personal account of the glowing deed that had been done in Charleston Harbor would help. He was sure that his friend General Beauregard would release him for this important duty. Harry's heart and judgment alike responded to the call. He took the letter to General Beauregard, finding him at the Charleston Hotel, with Governor Pickens and officers of his staff, and stood aside while the general read it. Beauregard at once wrote an order. This is your discharge from the Palmetto Guards, he said. Colonel Kenton writes wisely. We need Kentucky, and I understand that a very little more may bring the state to us. Go with your father. I understand that you have been a brave young soldier here, and may you do as well up there. Harry, feeling pride but not showing it, saluted and left the room, going at once to Madame Dulaunay's, where he had left his baggage. He intended to leave early in the morning, but first he sought his friends and told them goodbye. Don't forget we're going to have a great war, said Colonel Leonidas Talbot and the first battle line will be far north of Charleston. I shall look for you there. God bless you, my boy, said Major Hector St. Hilaire. May you come back some day to this beautiful Charleston of ours and find it more beautiful than ever. I'll meet you at Richmond later on, said Arthur St. Clair, and then we'll serve together. I'll join you at the White House in Washington, said Tom Langdon, and I'll give you the next best bed to sleep in with your boots on. Harry gave his farewells with deep and genuine regret. Whether their manner was grave or frivolous, he knew that these were good friends of his, and he sincerely hoped that he would meet them again. Madame de Linay spoke to him almost as if he was a son of hers, and there was dew in his eyes, because he could never forget her kindness to the lad who had been a stranger. He resumed his civilian clothing, and put his gray uniform, fine and new, of which he was so proud, in his saddlebags. Kentucky had declared herself neutral ground, warning the armies of both North and South to keep off her sacred soil, and he did not wish to invite undue attention. He intended, moreover, to leave the train when he neared Pendleton at the same little station which he had taken it when he started south. It was a different Harry who started home late in April. Four months had made great changes. He bore himself more like a man. His manner was much more considered and grave. He had seen great things, and he had done his share of them. He gazed upon a world full of responsibilities and perils. But he looked back at Charleston, the gay, the volatile, and the beautiful, with real affection. It was almost buried now in flowers and foliage. Spring was at the full, and every breeze was sharply sweet with grassy flavors. The very triumph and joy of living penetrated his soul. Youth swept aside the terrors of war. He was going home after victory. He soon left Charleston out of sight. A last roof or steeple glittered for a moment in the sun, and then was gone. Before him lay the uplands and the ridges, and in another day he would be in another land. He crossed now the low mountains, passed through Nashville again, although he did not stop there, his train making immediate connection. And once more, and with a thrill, he entered his own state. 
He learned from casual talk on the trains that affairs in Kentucky were very hot. The special session of the legislature, called by Governor McGoffin, was met at Frankfurt early in May. The women of the state had already prepared an appeal to the legislature to save them from the horrors of civil war. Harry saw that he had not left active life behind him when he came away from Charleston. The feeling of strife had spread over a vast area. The atmosphere of Kentucky, like that of South Carolina, was supercharged with intensity and passion, but it had a difference. All the winds blew in the same direction in South Carolina, and they sang one song of triumph. But in Kentucky, they were variable and conflicting, and their voices were many. He felt the difference as soon as he reached the hills of his native state. People were cooler here, and they were more prone to look at the two sides of a question. The air, too, was unlike that of South Carolina. There was a sharper tang to it. It whipped his blood as it blew down from the slopes and crests. It was afternoon when he reached the little station of Winton, and left the train, a tall, sturdy boy, the superior of many a man in size, strength, and agility. His saddlebags over his arm, he went at once to the liveryman, with whom he had left his horse on his journey to Charleston, and asked for another, his best, for the ride to Pendleton. The liveryman stared at him for a moment or two, and then burst out into an exclamation of surprise. "'Why, Harry Kenton!' he said. "'Harry, you've changed a lot in so short a time. You were at the bombardment of Fort Sumter, they tell me. It's made a mighty stir in these parts.' There were never before such times in old Kentucky. Yes, Harry, I'll give you the best horse I've got. There ain't one more powerful in the state. But pushing as hard as you will, you can't reach Pendleton before dark, and you look out. Look out for what? Bill Skelly and his gang. Them mountaineers are up. They say they're going to beat the rich men of the lowlands and keep Kentucky in the Union. But between you and me, Harry... It's the hate they feel for them that think harder and work harder and make more than themselves. Bill Skelly is the worst man in the mountains, and he has gathered about him a big gang of toughs. They're caring mighty little for the Union or for the freedom of the slaves, but they expect to make a lot out of this for themselves. And now I tell you again, Harry, to look out as you go through the dark to Pendleton. This country is mighty troubled. I will, replied Harry, with vivid recollection of his ride from Pendleton to Winton. I am armed, Mr. Collins, and I have seen war. I served in one of the batteries that reduced Fort Sumter. He did not say the last as a boast, but merely as an assurance to the liveryman, who he saw was anxious on his account. If you've got pistols, just you think once before you shoot, said Collins. Things are surely mighty troubled in these parts, and they're going to be worse. Have you heard anything about my father? Is he at Pendleton? He was two days ago. He'd been up to Louisville, where the southern leaders had a meeting, but he couldn't make them go as he wanted them to go. So he come back to Pendleton. People are telling that he's going to Frankfurt soon. Harry thanked him, threw his saddlebags across the horse, a powerful bay, and giving a final wave of his hand to the sympathetic liveryman, rode away. He had little fear. He carried a pair of heavy double-barreled pistols in his holsters, and a smaller weapon in his pocket. The horse, as he soon saw, was of uncommon power and spirit, and he snapped his fingers at Skelly and his gang. He rode first at a long, easy walk, knowing too well to push hard at the beginning, and the afternoon passed without anything worthy of notice, save the loneliness of the road. In the two hours before sundown, he met less than half a dozen persons. All were men, 
and with a mere nod they went on quickly, regarding him with suspicion. This was not the fashion of a year ago, when they exchanged a friendly word or two, but Harry knew its cause. Now nobody could trust anybody else. The setting sun was uncommonly red, tinting all the forest with a fiery glow, and Harry looked apprehensively at the line of blue hills now on his right, whence danger had come before. But he saw nothing that moved there. No signal lights twinkled. The intervening space was a mass of heavy green foliage, which the eye, now that the twilight was at hand, could penetrate only a few score yards. A northeast wind off the distant mountaintops was cold and sharp, and Harry, who wore no overcoat, shivered a little. End of chapter 7, part 1 of 2. Recording by Michael Packard.